Welcome to Media Business Matters, the podcast that explores why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Sintner. This week we're going to go in a bit of a different direction from things we've done in, in past episodes, and we're going to talk about the business of political news and not-so-political news. So, there's an uncommon leader among cable channel viewing for the second time in the past few weeks, in that CNN was the most-watched cable channel in total viewing, and it's the eighth straight week overall that either CNN or Fox News has been on the most-watched cable channel in primetime. So, Amanda, what's going on here? Well, it's been a very uncommon election in a lot of ways, and on the business side of media ads and media buying, it's, it's just as uncommon as the rest of it. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. I don't think I've seen anything that has quite been like this election. So I, I think I would characterize it as a pretty big deal, would you? Yes and no. And so and if we're going back to talk about the, those cable news performances, for any non-sport content on a cable channel to draw more than, say, 3 million viewers is, is pretty solid, and the debates have done much better than that. CNN's last Republican debate just before the primaries in Ohio, Florida, Illinois, and Missouri was watched by 11.8 million viewers, and, and those are walking dead size numbers, so a solid audience by contemporary standards. But, but do keep in mind that there are 115 million U.S. television households, and that correlates to about 250 million viewers. But there, there's no doubt about the fact that the debates have been huge primetime events, and that's not commonly the case. No, I mean, I was really shocked when I saw that first debate number in August uh, for the first GOP debate pop 25 million viewers, which I believe was a record at the time. And none of them have quite reached that same level uh, as that first one. But still, I'm sure these cable networks would order a second season of the GOP debates if they could. Well, certainly. And the other thing to keep in mind is that whole day viewing number is interesting. And, and it does actually make a lot of sense given the nature of the election to date. But it's not usually the one that's typically reported. Well, why not? Well, usually we rank cable channels by their prime time viewing because there's sort of this assumption that the, the leaders in, in daytime viewing because of the specificity of the daytime audience uh, might not be the same ones that are, are leading in prime time. And, and, and sometimes those daytime audiences aren't as valuable to advertisers either. So the daytime numbers, that's why they have two different lists, I guess. But still, this election cycle is not only uncommon in terms of the audiences that the debates have garnered, because there's been so much, and I, I don't want to call it news here, but, but there's been so much spectacle that there is constantly some new, in quotes, development for the pundits to discuss and dissect all day. And, and that's really what's been great for driving up cable audiences, even outside the debates, but the whole full run of a CNN or a Fox Daily schedule. Well, I, I almost want to say that that's the kind of the nature of 24-hour news is the anchors and the networks will find some little story to grasp on and we'll kind and then we'll run with it. I mean that's kind of been like slow and steady news has kind of been the story for a while. Right. I think you know we see cable news have these spikes when when something big is going on like for when the 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 plane went down and was it was missing for a long time that's something that was great for ratings or when or, there's or when there's a bombing in Brussels uh, again a bombing in Brussels but i think what it, it's not usually not usually can a political campaign one that's going to play out over the course of 12 to 18 months manage to 
captivate so constantly and sort of, you know, be driving almost soap opera-like viewing uh, for those afternoon cable channels and, and, and daytime and morning as well. So I, I think that's one of the pieces that is a bit different about this cycle. So I guess we kind of touched on kind of the idea of, is it normal? I mean, in the campaigns really kind of haven't been this time around. But in terms of the business of an election year, is this kind of following the nor- what we normally see? Well, not really. No- normally, like, this would be a legitimate topic of conversation because normally election years are a big media business story in relation to local television stations and radio. And then especially in contested states because so much ad money reigns in uh, with all of the candidate spending. Well, what would happen is a candidate will target a particular audience in a particular state and they don't, ad- they don't advertise on the national channels, do they? Not not regularly. I mean, part of that is it's just not necessarily based on how our political system works, a great strategy, because at least in this point, it's about winning state by state. And, and given how expensive media buys are, campaigns are very strategic in terms of making sure they put more of their money in, in states where it's a winner-take-all situation and there's going to be more delegates at stake. Um, and then once we get to the general election, it's going to be pretty clear where different states are, are going ahead of time. And so the money is going to go especially into those contested uh, elections and and then at states where the polls are showing that there might be a chance that either candidate could win whoever the nominees are. Right, and when we get to the general election, you also have the congressional races going on too, and sort of the implications there. So political ads, though, have not really been the big story this year, uh, and the Republican frontrunner, Mr. Trump, has made fairly limited use of ads. And yet, every day, if you were to watch the news, you will see a story on Donald J. Trump and something that he does, something that he says. Yes, and and I want to stay away from the are journalists doing their jobs questions and that are related to the media coverage. Those are valid and important questions, but they're the terrain of another show. From a media business perspective, this election cycle has done a lot to illustrate that a lot of the quote-unquote truths that we believed about the role of media and money in campaigns are less ironclad than suspected. Well, what do you mean by that? I'd say the condensed version is a question of what are the consequences of a commercial media on the functioning of democracy. In a typical year, there is considerable concern about how expensive the television advertising is for campaigns and whether broadcast stations in particular markets abuse their status as licensees charged with serving the public interest, convenience, and necessity by charging so much for airtime. Well, and this is because they use kind of this public spectrum that they license from the government and is technically supposed to be owned by us in a way? Not technically or supposed to is by these are the laws this is the policy within this and yet country it doesn't always seem like that does it right and so this is again where one of those moments where we do have to tease apart broadcasting and cable and broadcasters are are brought even though we receive many of us our broadcast channels over or through our cable subscription that basic broadcast business is initially broadcast using the public spectrum or that's that's the basis of of the model and so the question in, in a normal election year is often whether broadcast stations, instead of charging so much for ad time, whether they should instead be offering substantial free time to the candidates in, with the idea that a well-informed electorate is, is going to better serve democracy. 
But this election has pointed to other reasons to be concerned about a commercial media system. And what what other reasons or concerns have been brought up? Uh, I think I saw this tweet during that serious Republican debate um, that I thought summed it up well. I don't recall who posted it, but the statement was, so all the journalists who've been complaining about the sensational coverage of the election are now complaining that the debate is boring. And to me, that pointed out how good for business a wild, sensational, and at times even violence-laden campaign is for media outlets, while it is also clearly not helpful for rational democracy. In many ways, this has been an, a long been an issue for news coverage. Sort of this question of do Americans receive the kind of journalism that's needed for creating an informed citizenry, or does the commercial imperative of collecting lots of viewers for advertisers lead to more entertainment-focused infotainment? And at times, this election cycle has struggled to even classify as infotainment. Honestly, sometimes to me, this election cycle seems like something that would play out more on a Saturday Night Live stage or a joke that John Oliver or John Stewart would have told on The Daily Show. It has all been fairly surreal. Uh, that's for sure. And, and and kind of, I think your last comment on infotainment versus news kind of relates to a question that's been facing all forms of media and all forms of news gathering recently is how to balance that need between being this informed public and being a business. Because really, the one thing that I always try to remember when writing about or covering any of these media businesses are that they are businesses first before they are producers of content or informery. So just as we took a deep dive into some of the dilemmas facing the recording industry last week, we're all we're now gonna kinda go into the nitty a bit into the nitty-gritty of how journalism makes its money. So, Amanda, you've been reading a book called Saving the Media. Yes, it's it's a quick read, a short book by a French economist, so it's recently translated, named Julia Cage. Does she propose any sort of answer for uh, how to save the media? <laughs> Well, the subtitle of the book is Capitalism, Crowdfunding, and Democracy. And, and though it's titled Saving the Media, it, it is actually all about journalism. And Alex, you know that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about media business models and doing different thought experiments, applying the strategies and models from one media industry to another, Absolutely. just trying to find some answers, right? That seems to be the game. And so I found Kaj's book particularly provoking because it suggests a model that we really haven't seen. Really? And what, what model is that? Uh, let me backpack just a little bit because it, it, it isn't wholly original. Basically, Kaj argues for recognizing that journalism is part of a broader education industry, if you will. And that as cultures that have recognized education as an important cultural value, we should fund journalism as we do education. Really? That that sounds kind of like she's pushing for a bit of a public a public service model there, similar to like a PBS sort of thing. Yeah, that, that, that's what it reminded me of as well. Um, or maybe not U.S. PBS, but uh, the public broadcasting systems that uh, have dominated maybe Western Europe. Maybe the BBC. Europe. Right. Yeah, so you've got to be a little bigger than, than the U.S. She calls it a nonprofit media organization model. And in, in some ways, as I said, it's, it's quite comparable with the way public broadcasters were slash are funded in Western Europe. Although they're facing just increasing pressure right now and budget cuts and everything along those lines. Right, um, which is a great topic for another uh, podcast. 
Uh, but her model also draws some from the different experiments, I guess I'd still call them, with foundation funding that have become more common, although certainly not mainstream, in the U.S., such as ProPublica or the Center for Investigative Reporting. Something I find really interesting about those organizations is they're doing investigative reporting that's kind of been done away with by the mainstream. CNN has substantially cut down their investigative unit. Um, the broadcast networks don't do nearly the kind of deep digs that they might have used to. Yet these nonprofits have become increasingly common, but they're not the main sources of where people are getting their news. So let, let's transition into a few questions facing kind of the journalism and media industry today. So digital distribution has allowed, frankly, required the journalism industry to try different strategies. Uh, one of those is called native advertising. Alex, I know you've worked with it a bit. Do you want to explain native advertising? Absolutely. I mean, native advertising is where a, a news organization publishes an article which was bought and paid for by an advertiser. They're usually tagged with some sort of ad marker or promoted by, brought to you by. They usually is some small indicator to show that they were, in fact, paid, bought and paid for by an advertiser, but otherwise they look exactly like a normal article on the site. BuzzFeed and Vice in particular have been particularly pushing into this kind of advertising, although no one is really immune from it anymore. Even the New York Times has gone and done uh, articles like this, and in fact has an entire department built to support articles like this. So the, to me, this feels a lot like what has long been called advertorial content in the magazine industry. I mean, notably, magazines typically have these are magazines that haven't been as hard news focused. It's just sort of a way to clue you in, let's say, if you're reading a women's beauty magazine um, and that you're reading about top tips for, you know, conditioning your hair. And, well, these aren't editorially supported ideas, right, that a, a journalist has, has investigated and figured out, uh, but these are actually being brought to you directly by an advertiser. And so I think it's it's in my mind, that environment is a little bit different than moving into the, the hard news space. And I think there are significant non-business concerns with this practice, but there are also some concerns from a media business perspective. Vice was in, this new, in the news this week because of its web traffic, uh, and it was, its web traffic was down 17.4%. And it turns out that several of the digital journalism platforms contract with small sites that don't have ad infra infrastructure to sell their ads in an, an arrangement that's called traffic assignment. So what happens is smaller sites will team up with the larger organization, the larger organization will sell their ads, and what Vice was doing is they were bundling the traffic for all these sites put together and selling it to advertisers, and the advertisers would then buy a placement on Vice, which would then be paired with um, a bunch of smaller ads as well. It's actually very similar to maybe how some of the big broadcast networks will sell their ads. They'll sell ads for a big program in a network, and then those ads will then be bundled with a, maybe some smaller cable ads or something along those lines. That's a part of why um, when networks are negotiating Super Bowl price, they will push this hard. 
Sure, and, and it's important to note, there's nothing wrong with traffic assignment. It's, it's, it's a legitimate practice. It's just maybe not one that most, even people in, in, that are familiar with web advertising were familiar with. And so this was a problem for Vice because many of the sites that it, it bundled in their score, um, sites that use a lot of clickbait, just happened to have big drops. Like uh, D- Distractify, I believe, was the biggest one. Right. What I found interesting was in Variety's reporting, they noted that Vice.com actually accounts for less than half of the traffic total that the company has represented as, in quote, Vice Media on Comscore. And, and to me, what was significant about that is, is that you know, Comscore numbers are starting to work much like Nielsen ratings in terms of people looking at them and, and, and understanding or trying to make sense of the emerging market. And, and Vice has had a lot of attention in, in, in discussions because it has seemed to figure out sort of a way to compete in this new environment. It's just launched a cable network, so there's all sorts of, of discussions. They have a huge deal with HBO and uh, apparently a nightly newscast that's going to come down the pike, I believe, sometime this year. But the way in which, you know, sort of a, a, a less informed but, you know, smart person who's looking at media ratings on Comscore might come to the conclusion that, that Vice Media is, is far more prevalent uh, than it actually is. Right. And I mean, when, when we talk about digital, it's not just the websites. It's, it's on social media as well. Certainly. I think we're going to have to take a deeper dive into this in another week because so many business practices are, are changing quickly and we have different competitors who are, are launching different services. But it, it remains the case that I think the big challenge for print-based journalism has been coming up with an economic model that works in, in the digital space. Uh, to some degree, the New York Times has solved some of the problem by going back to that paywall, which for a while people thought would, have, would be its downfall. Or uh, if you end up knowing how to use private browsing, you might not need that paywall at all. That's called piracy, Alex. So the, the key thing about what the New York Times has done is really shifted its balance from relying so heavily on advertising to relying on subscription. Now, you can only do that if you're providing something that is of such value that people are willing to pay for it. And so that's not to say that can be the only space for print journalism, but I think that's a particular strategy. And then the other thing that uh, is starting to emerge are are sort of different ways of redistributing content that perhaps might lead to either micropayments or some other kind of subscription structure that, that does make sense for people because we aren't bound to a singular publication anymore in the way that we were in the analog era. Where you would get that one newspaper, maybe two, two if you lived in a busy area, delivered to your front door every morning. Right. Though the way in which we're able to share and circulate information, you know, we share and circulate articles. And so really what has happened to newspapers isn't all that different from what we were talking about last week when we were talking about the recording industry and the way that individual songs became unbundled from from albums and once people found that they could access content in that specific way they were they were very attracted to that absolutely i mean looking at kind of how you know bounce rates are becoming are growing much more as people will click to the site for one article and then you know they'll go back to their social media feed i mean that's kind of the big question that's facing these organizations now is how do you keep these people on your website? How do you keep them reading your content? Right. And so I think that's maybe the battle we can expect to play out in the next two or three years is 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 in between those 
sites like Facebook, um, maybe to some degree Twitter, but those entities are wanting to sell advertisements to users specifically, um, but they do recognize that those legacy media entities have content that does draw and attract audiences. And so I think there's, there's an elaborate dance going on between the two, trying to figure out whether there's a better way to, to share revenue from that advertising. I, I mean, I have to be honest that looking at all of it, though, I, I just don't see how advertising is, is going to be a model that's that's going to be able to support the, the creation of content, regardless of how it's, it's distributed in these systems. Unless ad rates grow substantially from where they are right now, because, I, I mean, digital ads are so much smaller than analog ads in terms of the amount of money you can get. Right, and this is one of those important like new truths of the digital era is the difference between likes or clicks and dollars. And it is certainly the case that many of the, the pieces of content have enormous click-through, people reading them, but the advertising rates are so much lower. And I think it's important to understand that that comes from the fact that digital distribution allows us to distribute tons and tons of content, but it also creates an infinitesimal array of opportunities for advertising. So part of those ad rates that helped support the broadcast and cable television industry of yore and the newspaper and magazine industries when they were in, in a print era is that there was capacity. There were only going to be so many pages of ads or so many minutes of commercials in the television show. And it was that scarcity, that, that limitation and the supply of commercial minutes or pages or inches, whatever medium we're talking about, that's what enabled those companies to demand more uh, in payment from advertisers. It's basic basic economic supply and demand. It is. Once we move to the web, there's tons of content out there, but there's also no limit to the number of pre-roll ads or banner ads or anything else that you can put in there. And and that's that's where this problem of the cost and value of digital advertising comes in. And it doesn't help that there are ad blockers out there now which can effectively get rid of any single ad on any site. I mean, I admit, sometimes they're a little convenient. Like, when I, if I'm trying to watch a TV show, ad blockers getting rid of my ads, that's a good thing. But they're killing kind of, even in a small portion of the revenue, in a pretty substantial way. Alex, we're going to have to have a deeper conversation about why it is that you think it's okay to pirate things, and I think it's okay to ad block things. And in my mind... These are technologies that are developing to respond to the fact that a certain experience is being forced upon readers or viewers. And, you know, I'm willing to pay for the media that I want, but don't embed endless advertisements or don't waste my time with it. And, I mean, there are organizations who are trying to combat these ad blockers. I mean, Forbes actually makes you whitelist Forbes.com before they will let you see any content if you're using an ad blocker. And then technically they say they gave it to you, quote, ad light for 30 days. Still, there people are trying or organizations are trying to kind of wage a bit of a war with their readers in this way. Well, it's the times are getting no more simpler, right? So we could go back 10 years ago and we look at the debates over whether you let content in or out of a paywall. So it's certainly the case that we haven't gotten any closer to figuring out uh, the monetization of, of print journalism and, and, and much other, many other, sorry, digital industries for that matter. 
But we'll have to come back another week and try to work it out. And I believe we will. Now, we're going to move on to our last segment. What are we watching this week? So, Amanda, what are you watching? Well, we've become sort of bi-weekly here, so I have two different shows. Last week, I worked my way very quickly through American Crime Story, the O.J. Simpson. That's from Ryan Murphy, right? It is, and I never would have thought to watch it when I saw it announced. I thought very little of it, but a lot of the critics that I trust were very positive about it. Uh, and so I took a look, and it, it's it. As someone who actually lived through the OJ trial and, and can remember that, it, yeah, it, I, I was uh, a month away from being born when <laughs> OJ was running through the Bronco. <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, anyhow, it, it's been interesting to revisit that, that period of time. And then this week, I have been watching the first season of, of Outlander. Again, another show that I'd seen a number of critics talking about, but had never gotten around to, to watching. And so um, that's, that's what's on my screen this week. Uh, that's fantasy, right? I, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's, it, it's fantasy slash historical fiction uh, in the <laughs> sense that... Uh, like uh, Leftovers, like I guess it's a, it's a fantasy concept, but so it's this idea of a, the main protagonist is a woman who was a nurse during World War II and, and somehow travels back to the 1400s, and it's about her adventures uh, there. And so, but once you get back into the 1400s, then it, <laughs> it, it, it seems to be fairly historical fiction, so a blend of genres. Yeah, both of those shows are things I've... I've been meaning to watch, but just haven't gotten to yet. Well, it's what's great about the current era of television. It's just there for you whenever you can get around to it. What have you been watching, Alex? So, as we kind of gone bi-weekly, um, I, I spent the better part of the past week catching up with AMC's Better Call Saul, um, the spinoff of Breaking Bad featuring the Saul Goodman character. And, you know, last season, I kind of had very um, cautious expectations for the show. I mean, it's coming off of probably the show I would consider to be the best I've ever seen and kind of going in a bit of a different tonal direction. But my goodness, they have been executing it so well this year. That's what I've been reading everywhere. I haven't started Saul yet, but it's it's on my list. It's yeah, it's very smart. It's very funny. Um, they get a lot of comic ability and pathos out of Bob Odenkirk, Jonathan Banks as Mike Ehrman. Trout. How he lost to Peter Dinklage last <laughs> year at the Emmys, I have no friggin' clue. Oh, I'm... that long <laughs> silence is Amanda trying to recognize. There is really nothing to say about the award shows in terms of whether or not they actually recognize uh, though, artistic greatness. They're even just even though like yeah. we like to pretend they do and like to aim, you know, aim for these award shows to be the bastions of what we love, but they they never quite get there. Well, in the business of media, nothing is ever what we think it is. Thank, thank you very much for listening to the, this episode of Media Business Matters. Uh, you can find more episodes of Media Business Matters at amandalots.com, where you can also find links to our iTunes and RSS feeds where you can subscribe. And that way, every time we release a new episode of Media Business Matters, it'll be right there in your podcast feed. You can follow us on Twitter. Amanda, where can they follow you? I'm at Dr. TV Lots, L-O-T-Z. And I'm at, at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. And if there's any feedback you have on the show or you have some questions you'd like us to take on here at Media Business Matters, feel free to email us at drtvlots at gmail.com. All right. Thank you all for listening.